I'd like to pray again and ask the Lord's blessing on this time of study in, our, in the Word of God. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be able to open Your Word and to see the glory of the first advent of Your Son, Jesus Christ, His incarnation, the Word becoming flesh and living among us. Father, may we see more this morning and experience more joy and gratitude and that You would be glorified in a greater way among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this Advent season we have been focusing on the humanity of Christ in our studies together. And this morning, it is, it is my desire to rejoice with you and to delight in another aspect of the humanity of Christ. I want to worship the Lord together if He will enable us to do so. We're going to look at the necessity of Christ's humanity. We have uh, desired so far to learn of Christ and worship Him by considering the beginning of His humanity. We've talked about the virgin birth in some degree. Uh, So much more, obviously, that we could talk about. He was born of a virgin. He took on true human nature. The eternal God, the second person, the Trinity, took on human nature. Revealing God to us, making the way of salvation. He was certainly in the virgin birth demonstrating that salvation is entirely a work of God. We also look together at the experience of Christ's humanity. It's important as we look at Scripture to understand that Jesus had a real human body with a real human spirit, and he experienced real temptations. And He gave real resistance to those temptations depending upon the Holy Spirit. He suffered in reality and endured in reality. And He was sinless in it all for us that we would be made right with God. And He is to us now and forever a sympathetic and powerful high priest so that through Him we have the help we need to endure temptations and afflictions and come out of that in a way that honors the Lord. As I said, I want to consider this morning the necessity of Christ's humanity. This is part three in our series. And I want to talk about its necessity as it relates to our salvation. And there's, there are many reasons when you consider the scope of our salvation. Many reasons why Christ's humanity is necessary, but I want to focus really even more specifically on how Christ's humanity was necessary for our justification. When we talk about salvation, we talk about salvation in three parts, right? Justification, God's declaring me right with Him. God declares sinners righteous. That is an amazing miracle. And then... Sanctification, God making me into the image of Christ and preparing me to be then glorified, the final part of salvation. When, when we see Jesus, when He takes us home to be with Him, He perfects us and all of the, very even the presence of sin will be removed. But I want to talk about justification, that first part of salvation where God declares us 
righteous. God declares us right apart from any work of our own. Totally of His sovereign grace. That is important that we understand that Christ's humanity was absolutely essential for our justification. And as we consider this, it will bring us great joy. For sinners like us to be declared right with God, here's what we need. Two things. We need a man to live obediently in our place. That's the first thing we need. We need, we need a righteous substitute. Someone to live under God's law in our place because we have miserably failed to do so. But that's not the only thing. We need another thing. We need, we need a man to die atoningly in our place. We need a man to live obediently in our place. We need a man to die atoningly in our place. And the man Christ Jesus, our perfect Savior, did both of those things for all who put their trust in Him for that salvation. And that's our, that is our joy and our thanksgiving in the incarnation. So again, our main idea on this whole series is let's, let's ask God to give us a greater understanding of Christ's humanity that will lead us to worship Him by our trust, love, obedience, and praise to Him. Now, before we look at what God did in the humanity of Christ to live for us and die for us, we need to set a little bit of a biblical context. Can, I, can we do that together? Let's set a biblical context. And, and the context for Christ's life and death in our place, we can view that from a perspective of the unfolding story of redemptive history. Let's have a, a biblical history lesson a little bit here this morning. I want your minds to go back with me all the way to the very beginning of time when the Bible writes, in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. Our eternal God, the eternal Trinity, has chosen, and maybe some of this might be new to you today a little bit, but I hope you'll be able to, to capture this and rejoice in it with me. God has chosen to relate with mankind and revealing Himself to us and revealing to us His eternal plan of salvation through what the Bible calls a covenant If you did a Bible search and you looked up the word covenant, you would see it appear all throughout the pages of Scripture from cover to cover. God has chosen to relate with His creation, mankind, through covenant. What's a covenant? Well, we think of a covenant today. We might think of the marriage covenant. Where two people, a man and a woman, enter into a lifelong relationship. That's the marriage covenant. We could talk about a covenant as an unchanging agreement between two parties. But in the case of the covenants that God has made with us in the Scriptures, it's not between two equal parties. It's between a superior party and a subordinate party. And of course, God is that superior party. He is the Creator King. And He has drawn us into relationship with Himself in this covenant. And we as human beings, His image bearers, are the subordinate party. One section of Scripture that I think beautifully summarizes 
what God is doing in covenant relationship with His people it is Ezekiel 11.20b. Listen to this. It's, it's a wonderful statement. It says, And they shall be My people, and I will be their God. What an expression of love and loyalty that is. That God would say of us, I want these to be my people, and I want to be their God. God makes that happen through this covenant relationship. Now, <clears throat> these relational covenants by which God reveals Himself to us, and draws us near to Himself, they include many things, like <clears throat> identifications. God says to us in these covenants, this is who I am, and He reveals His glory to us, and He tells us what He's like, and He tells us what He will be to us. And in those covenants, God also tells us who we are and the purposes for which He made us. And it's all very clear in in the Scriptures. And these covenants also include provisions. God gives Himself to us, and He gives us every good gift of kindness and His grace so that we have everything we need to fulfill the purposes for which He made us. And these covenants also include requirements, commandments, that reflect the character of God. Commandments that detail how we can live according to the purposes for which God made us. And God has the right to do that. He is our King. And these, these covenants require also have rewards. Blessing upon blessing. Forever to the ones who keep the covenant requirements. And there's also punishments consequences for violating the covenant requirements. And during the course of redemptive history, God introduces in these covenants promises. Promises to do for us what's necessary to make us His people and keep us as His people and care for us as His people and bring us as His people to be with Him in His place and enjoy Him forever as our God. And we've got to understand something. When we think about God bringing us into a relationship with Himself and providing all this to us, God owes us nothing. Do you realize that? We live in such an age of entitlement, don't we? Where we think we deserve this and that God really lives for us and for our, and, and just to, to give me what I need. You know, we, we call Him and we're in trouble, right? He's like, you know, 911. God doesn't owe us anything, and yet in His kindness and in His generosity and His goodness, He's revealed Himself to us. And He wants to say to us, you are my people and I will be your God. And what's even more amazing in these covenants is that God promises by His loving kindness to fulfill all the covenant requirements for us even when we fail them. And these covenants come with tests. God tests His people to see if they'll keep His covenant with Him. God tests His people to see if they'll love Him as their God and live for Him as His people. Now, that's just a little bit of a summary. I'll think back to the beginning of the Bible and creation. And we'll just touch on those covenants for just a few moments. But I want you to ask your question as you think about this. How well have we been doing? keeping these covenants with God. Have we been doing well with this? How well have we been doing at being His people and showing Him loyal love at every 
point in history, in every place of testing, we have failed miserably. We have broken all the requirements of God's good covenants with us. Let me show you what I mean. God made a covenant with Adam, right? Adam, very beginning. Genesis 1, 26, 27, God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. Here, here's all the food you need to do this. Bring me glory. Enjoy. It's yours. You can have freely eat from all the trees of the garden. God just pours his, his favor upon Adam and Eve. And he says, but there's one test in here. Don't eat this certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam passed the test and remained loyal to God, he could eat of the tree of life and enjoy that position forever. What did Adam and Eve do? They ate from the one tree that God told them not to. Adam failed. And Adam was the representative for all of us in that test. For the entire human race, Romans 5, 12-21 talks about that clearly. And so we have all fallen in Adam. We have all followed Adam in our behavior. And we have all received in our experience in the consequences of Adam's sin, which is what? Death. God said, if you eat, you will what? Surely die. God told them that so clearly. But even, even at the moment of the fall and the curse, God made a gracious promise. What did He say? Genesis 3.15 I will do something about this curse. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your seed and her seed, her seed will crush your head. And God was merciful to Adam and Eve. You ever wonder why when Adam and Eve sinned, God told them they would surely die? Why didn't they just right then and there die? Why? Is it because God is a liar? No. They did die spiritually, and they were separated from God, but God is merciful. And instead of Adam and Eve dying, what happened? An animal died, and they were covered with the skin of that animal, which has magnificent significance for Christ coming. There's the first Gospel, Genesis 3.15. But, but there's more covenants you see throughout Scripture. God made a covenant with Noah. Again, a gracious covenant. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, right? Genesis 6.8. Noah didn't deserve that. But God pulled him out of the judgment that He had given to the rest of the world, him and his family. God made a covenant with Noah. God ratified that covenant with a sacrifice of an animal altar just as He did with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And in that covenant, God blessed Noah and showed him grace with his words. And, and, and many of the words that God used with Noah were very similar to those he said to Adam. And how did Noah do with the covenant? Genesis 9, 20 and 29, it's almost like the covenant is just finished being spoken and, and Noah's off doing his own sinful deeds. This is how we do. But even so, through that covenant, God was gracious and promised to preserve the earth and mankind and the natural process of things in spite of Noah's failure and the sin of mankind. You see how God is? Every time we see a rainbow in the sky, do you think of this story? God does. Every time you see a rainbow, we're reminded that in spite of human sin, God has preserved us. And He gives to us what we need to live and go on knowing Him. And He pours out His goodness upon us. 
God made a covenant with Abraham. God chose Abraham, Genesis 12.1, out of his family and made him to be his own people. God made a covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And there's so much detail in there that we're not going to obviously go through today. But God promised Abraham a great family and a place where that family could grow and know God and worship Him. And great blessing so that He could be a blessing to the rest of the world. And that covenant was ratified by a sacrifice of animals. God swore by His own character and existence to keep those promises to Abraham. Abraham asked God, how do I know for sure? And God said, slaughter the animals, and I walk between them, and I will say to you that I will sooner die than fail to keep my promises to you. This is how God is. How did Abraham do? Genesis 16. We see Abraham off doing his own thing, taking Sarah's handmaid to himself, trying to make God's promises fulfilled by his own human, sinful, self-reliant means. Did God bail out on Abraham? No. God was still gracious, kept his own covenant promises in spite of Abraham's failure. And ultimately, God still blessed the world through Abraham's seed because Abraham's seed is who? The seed of the woman. Jesus. Our Lord Jesus Christ. God made a covenant with Moses. Genesis 12, 15. God powerfully brought Moses and Israel out of slavery to the Egyptians so they would be his people and he would be their God. They were graciously chosen and redeemed by God. Exodus 20 details the stipulations of that covenant, right? God said, here is my Ten Commandments. Worship me. Love each other. How did Moses and Israel do? (laughs) This story is getting old, right? How did they do? They failed. But even so, God graciously kept His promises and brought them into the land that that He had promised to them where they could worship Him and He would rule them as their king in loyal love. God made a covenant with David. 1 Samuel 16, God graciously chose David out of his brothers. He was the least of his brothers to be the earthly king of the kingdom of God. Amazing. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David promising to him that the throne of the kingdom of God would always be filled with one of his sons. What a promise. Forever and ever. And was David loyal to the covenant? No. 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David sinned grievously against the Lord. But God still kept His gracious promises, which were ultimately fulfilled when David's greater son and Lord ascended and took the throne of heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. How did all of these covenant representatives of humanity and God's chosen people do with covenant requirements? They failed. They couldn't make or keep themselves or God's chosen people holy unto Him. They couldn't do it. That's hundreds and hundreds of years of history. But God still kept His promises to them. 
God was merciful and gracious to them in spite of their sin. And the central question that we need to consider this morning is this. How could God do that? How could God enter into covenant relationship with people like that, like us? How can God be merciful and gracious to sinners like us, like me and you? God doesn't owe us anything but the punishment for our covenant violations, our sin. We deserve death. That's what God said so clearly. Eternal wrath under his holy judgment. I mean, which one of us can stand up right now and say, I have kept God's covenant requirements? I did, I've done it. I'm still doing it. Doing, I'm doing really well. Think of Adam's calling. Think what God called Adam to do as a representative for mankind. No, we, we, don't, we don't fulfill these things. Moses' law? No, if I don't break them with my hands, I'm breaking them in my heart. So how can the holy God of heaven and earth withhold from us the punishment of our own covenant violation and instead show us mercy and grace and love and, and even keep his promises to us and bless us and, and still be the just judge and king that he is? And the answer to that question this morning is the focus of our study. And it finds its answer in the incarnation of Christ. God sent a man to keep all of the covenant requirements perfectly in our place. You see, that is salvation. God sent a man to take and satisfy all of the punishment for our covenant violations in our place. That's exactly what God has done in the new covenant through the guarantor of that covenant, Jesus Christ. God fulfilled His saving promises to His people in the old covenants through what He did in Christ in the new covenant. God sent a covenant representative. That's why in the Bible He's called the second Adam. The first Adam failed. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, triumphed perfectly. And He did keep all of the covenant requirements for us and took all of the punishment for our covenant violations in our place. That's why it's necessary that our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, would be a true man. A man. A real man to do this in our place. So first, God required a man to live righteously in our place, and the man Christ Jesus did. You can see this in Matthew 3 and verse 15. That's, that's my first point. Is simply God required a man to live righteously in our place. The man Christ Jesus did. You can see this here. Matthew 3.15 But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. What is the story? Stories of the baptism of Jesus. Jesus comes to John says, Will you baptize me? John's like, why do you need baptism? John was baptizing a baptizing of repentance, getting people ready to receive the Messiah. Why does Jesus have to be baptized? To fulfill righteousness, to meet all of God's requirements for Him. Luke 4, 1-15 through is Jesus' temptation. Jesus was tempted sorely by the evil one and still even then was righteous and did not sin, obeyed perfectly. Romans 5, would you turn to Romans 5 with me? Look at this passage, Romans 5, 12 through 21. 
our thematic studies are quite a bit different than our normal flow of of teaching, which we go verse by verse expositionally through the Scriptures. And so I've got to have you turn to something while we're walking through the Scriptures, right? Other than just looking up on the screen, that's fine too. But Romans 5, 12 through 21, this this is exactly, this text is exactly what we're talking about this morning. Therefore, just as sin, verse 12 came into the world through one man, that's Adam, right? And death through his sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, the law of Moses, right? But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned. If there's sin, there's death. That's the consequences of sin. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning is not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. That's Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many through one man's trespass, much more, for if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam and all of humanity, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's Adam and sin and death and humanity. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. That's the work of Christ and those who are in Him. For if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So there's covenant representatives here. Adam, sin, condemned all of humanity and brought sin and death. Jesus, our covenant representative, brought life because of His obedience. His perfect righteousness. Therefore, as one trespass, verse 18, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The righteousness of Christ earns us life. Adam's sin earned death for the entire human race. Jesus obeyed and earned life for all who trust in Him. Philippians 2 5 through 11 also talks about Jesus' obedience, specifically in verse 8, and being found in human form. Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Look at this verse. Galatians 4, 3 through 5. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, virgin birth, right? Look at this next phrase born under the law. Do you catch the weight of that phrase? Jesus, the man, was born and and submitted himself to the law of God. Why? So that as our representative, he could keep the law perfectly 
for us and make us right with God. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might be called sons. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. And because of Him, because of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. And that God-man, Christ Jesus, that one Savior mediator, becomes to us wisdom and what? There it is. Righteousness. He is our righteousness. He perfectly kept God's law for us so that that righteousness could be ours and we could be declared right with God. And we have it again, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 21. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Look at this, verse 21. For as by man came death, how did death come in? Adam, sin, death. But by a what? A man has come resurrection from the dead. Well, what is the reward for righteousness? Life. Whose righteousness has won for us Resurrection and life, Christ's righteousness. This is, this is our salvation. By a man came this life, the man Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 7-9, through 9, this is why the Apostle Paul rejects his own righteousness. Whatever gain I had, whatever religious accomplishments I have, whatever religious pedigree I hold on to, I count it as loss so that I can have Christ. I count it all loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for His sake, I suffer the loss of all things. All this self-righteous accomplishments that Paul has been talking about in verses 4-6. through And he counts them as refuse, rubbish, so that he can gain Christ. And when you gain Christ, you can be found in Him, but you don't have righteousness of your own that comes from trying to keep the law. You see? You have the righteousness of Christ that comes through faith, by trusting in Him. And it's the righteousness from God. It depends on faith. Christ the man came, lived that perfect life, earned righteousness and eternal life for us, and we receive it by faith. Hebrews 7, 5, 7, and 9, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Though He was a Son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And He, being made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, to all who obey His Word, to repent and believe in Him. He obeyed. He completed His obedience. And through that, becomes our salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. There's perfect righteousness so that then we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And to summarize it all, I love Romans 10.4 Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That not that a wonderful verse? Christ is the end of your trying to keep the law. We, we are so prone to try to do something to impress God. God, accept me into relationship with you. 
I, I do this, and I, go, and I go to church, and I give this, and I, and I have this kind of family, and I do it. And we just list it all out for God. And God does not receive human righteousness for salvation. He won't, because it all falls short of his glory. But Christ, as a man, lived perfectly. And he's the end of the law for us, but it is for our righteousness. And how do we receive that? Everyone who what? Who works for it? Who meets God halfway? Who tries to impress God? No, it's faith alone. Everyone who believes. That's such good news. How is it possible for us to be covenant breakers and still be given the gift of eternal life with the covenant maker? Because Jesus kept God's covenant requirements for every sinner who trusts in him. And to those who trust in Christ's righteousness and not their own, God gives all the blessings of his covenant of grace. And that's our joy. Number two this morning, and this is our last point. It's not all that Jesus did in our place. It's not all. Just that He lived a perfect life. Someone also had to die in our place to pay the full penalty for our covenant violations. This is why the humanity of Christ is necessary. Number two, God requires a man to die atoningly in our place. And the man Christ Jesus did. God requires human death to satisfy the punishment of our covenant violations. That's what every sinner, every single one of us deserves before our holy God. God told Adam, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will what? You will surely die. And God tells us the wages, the payment of sin is what? Death. We have participated in sin. And we have participated in death. We are, in our culture, we are appalled every time a murderer doesn't get the death penalty or every time a criminal offense isn't given a just sentence. And it should astound us to consider that God would hold back from immediately sending every one of us to eternal death in hell. That should astound us every day. Because that's what our sin deserves against our infinitely holy God. It's right. That's just. That's good. God said it. We know it. And yet we sin anyway. And God is a good and just king who rules over all. And while he is patient and kind, he will not overlook sin. He will judge sin. He's not not corrupt in his justice. But God did something amazingly merciful and wonderful. He's made a way for the sin of sinners to be judged, not in hell, but in the real body of a substitute. That's the amazing mercy of God. And that's why it was necessary to our salvation that Christ become a man and die on the cross. As a real man, He took all the punishment for the covenant violations to those who put their trust in Him for salvation. Turn turn with me to Romans. You're already in Romans 5. Turn back to Romans 3. You can see this so so clearly here. Verses 21 to 26. You know, sometimes we 
We get used to quoting those well-known verses. Romans 3.23, for, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we, and we miss the context around it that's so wonderful that sets it right in place for us. Look at this. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You mean, you mean I can be righteous with the righteousness of God and not keep the law? That's really good news for us lawbreakers, right? It's for all who believe in Christ. For there is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're justified. We can be called right with God by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And and that kind of gift, that kind of being called justified, doesn't just require the righteousness that comes from Christ because of His obedience, but also, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. What's that mean? Well, God put Christ as the appeasement of His own wrath. That's what propitiation means. To appease God's righteous wrath. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. And that too we receive by faith. And that is to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Right? God, God didn't immediately punish people with His wrath, but He was forbearant. Why? Because Christ died on the cross. And that has eternal effect. Before it and after it. It was to show His righteousness, verse 26, at the present time, so that He might be both the just, He can stay just because He will punish sin, and the justifier. He can be merciful and declare sinners just and righteous. But only for those who have faith in Jesus. You see that beautiful section? This is so important. God does require death, and He met the requirements with His own Son who became a man. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself, that's Christ, bore our sins in His what? He had to be a human in His body on the cross, on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous or the unrighteous. Don't get those mixed up, right? Christ is the righteous. We are the unrighteous. And still, He did that so that He can bring us to God. That He can stand us before a holy God with joy. 2 Corinthians 5.21 again, For our sake He made Him to be sin. The holy Christ became sin on the cross. Became our sin. So that we would be made righteous. Colossians 2.13-14 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses. How can God just forgive us? Does He just forgive us because we ask Him to? No, He forgives us because He he canceled the record of our debt. All of our covenant violations that stood against us 
with its legal demands. Well, how did he do that? He, he took away all of our guilt, all of the debts that we've racked up, the ones we haven't even committed yet. God knows, and they're on the record of debt. And he sets them all aside and, and, and the legal demands for our punishment that those debts require. How did he do that? He set it aside by nailing it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross in the body of his son. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you first of importance that also what I also received, that Christ died. That's a word of substitution right there. For our sins. He died in our place in accordance with the Scriptures. Surely He has borne our griefs. He, Jesus, bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. This whole section is about substitution. God requires death. And Jesus met it. We, we thought he was being stricken and smitten by God and afflicted by God. But that's not what was happening. He was pierced for our transgressions. That's substitution. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a ta- chastisement that brought us peace with his wounds. We are healed. Jesus got the wrath. We got the healing. Jesus took the death. We get the life he earned. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And what the Lord has laid on him, the iniquity of us all. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things. So that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He took death and gave us life. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But then you look at Jesus, and behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You see, dear ones, why it was necessary for our salvation that the Son of God would be born as a man, to live a sinless life as a man, and die a sacrificial death as a man? This is is the beauty, the glory of the Incarnation. He fulfilled in the place of sinners all the covenant requirements that God demands of human beings. He satisfied in the place of sinners all of the covenant punishments for our broken requirements that God demands of human beings. What a joy to us to know that this is true. To be free from these demands. It's like... It's like pilgrim and pilgrim's progress. The, the big burden on your back is unleashed and rolls away. You can be a child of God because of what Christ has done. This is what Christ accomplished in the new covenant. And eternal life with God and perfect love is what all the participants of the new covenant will enjoy forever because of what Christ has done in their place. Remember the test that God gave to Adam? Remember? Back at the beginning, in essence, God told Adam, keep these covenant requirements and then you can eat of the tree of life and enjoy me and all that I have given to you forever. But Adam failed, right? And and did exactly what God told him not to do. Therefore, he could not eat of the tree of life and was sent out of the garden and out of the presence of the Lord to experience death. But then to the second Adam, Jesus It's as if God the Father said, keep these covenant requirements and you can eat of the tree of life 
and you can give the right to eat of the tree of life to all for whom you live and die and rise again. And as a true man, Jesus triumphed and he ate of the tree of life and he, as a man, was raised to eternal life with God the Father and because Jesus triumphed, Here's what he can say. Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You see what Christ, our covenant keeper, has done for us? Now we can go and eat and be with God forever. Revelation 22.1 and 2, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. That is exactly opposite what happened to Adam and Eve. Right? They had to leave. And the angels were there to guard. And now, because of Christ, we can eat. And we can enter. And be with our Savior forever. You see, this is what you have to rejoice in. And to look forward to. If your righteousness before God is Christ's and not yours, and if your death has been taken by Christ on the cross, the only way for us as sinners, as covenant violators, to have the right to the tree of life, eternal life with God and His love, and all the blessings of the covenant of God's grace is for us to trust in the sinless human life of Christ and the sacrificial death of Christ who came as a real man, the second Adam, in our place. Let your understanding of, of Christ's humanity then lead you to worship Him by your trust in Him. Your singular trust in Him. Your love for Him and devotion to Him because of what He's done. Your, your obedience to Him. If He's done all this for us, we only have but to live in faith and gratitude and praise. Is Christ your happy trust today? Is He? It's a lie to think that everyone is automatically covered by Jesus' life and death and receiving the blessings of eternal life. We want to think that. Everybody's good then. No. God enters into this covenant of grace and gives all the blessings of that covenant only to those who trust in Christ alone to keep the covenant for them. That's it. That's clear in the Gospel of the Apostles. Those are the sinners that are rejecting their sin. We don't become sinless in this life, but we live rejecting it and warring against it because God has changed our heart. And we live rejecting our own self-righteousness. It always keeps wanting to creep in. Wait, don't, can't I participate with God in my own salvation? No! Otherwise, what's the point of Christ doing all of this for us? If we try to participate with God in our salvation, we assault the honor of Christ in His complete righteousness and death for us. 
And, and those who trust in him are the sinners that are rejecting their own efforts at appeasing God by any kind of self-deprivation and self-denial. They've accepted Christ's sacrifice on the cross in their place in order to be accepted by God. Does that describe your faith today? Does it? If so, you are justified in Christ. You are headed for eternal life in God's love. That's not my word. That's the words of Scripture. If so, you're justified. And Christ has given you the right to eat of the tree of life and enter freely into the presence of God forever. This world, this time, is going to be gone so soon. And we have eternal life to look forward to you. To. That's, that's the good news right there. We get to be with God forever and his son and, and the family that he has made. And everything is going to be just the way God planned it to be in perfection. And you truly have something joyful to celebrate this Christmas season. You know, many of us may be thinking about losses that we've experienced over the last couple of years. You know, there's, there's a lot of people this, this holiday season that are celebrating Christmas and there is empty places in their house, right? But you know what? This is the joy of Christmas that we can look ahead and know that we will be with God forever and all those things that encroach upon our joy in this life be gone. Christ won that for us as our covenant-keeping head. If your trust is not in Christ like this, dear friend, let me tell you, you are still under the condemnation of God. You're still in Adam with his sin and his guilt. And you're headed away from the presence of God's love to his eternal punishment. So I implore you, I beg you this morning, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Through his life. Through his death. And now is the time for that. That's what the writer tells us in, in Corinthians, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. I long, I long for our Savior, Jesus Christ, to give to every one of us the right to eat of the tree of life and enjoy the presence of God forever. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these words. And now it's going to be a joy to spend some time at the table together. Thank you that Christ has made room for us as at the table and that we can rejoice in His righteousness together and His sacrificial death in our place. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.